I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we track the underlying ideas that are found in the text of Scripture, and we discover that sometimes things in Scripture, they're quite different than we've made them out to be in our culture. The Ten Commandments, they're an iconic document. They're on the walls of many homes and churches. Many American government institutions have carried the words of these commands on their walls or in monument form until relatively recently. We have multiple movies that depict artistic renditions of the events surrounding the giving of these words. And there's many pastors, ministers, philosophers, and speakers. They've waxed eloquent about the ideas that underlie these ten words. And yet these ten words are so very misunderstood, in my opinion. For many, they're simply a list of do's and don'ts. They're seen as commands because that's the name given to them in our English Bibles. But when we look to the Hebrew, these ten items, they're not called the Ten Commandments. They are, in every case, called the Ten Words. Now, just because they're called the Ten Words does not mean that they do not contain commands within them. It simply means that they're not all commands or decrees as they would have been seen in the ancient world. Some are simply great ideals. They're wisdom from God that we should understand and apply. And if we examine it and ponder deeply, we'll find that the wisdom portions of the ten words provide the foundation. They are the basis on which a person would accept the role of God to give commands in the first place. If you don't agree to the foundational ideals of the ten words, then the rest, the command portions, they're not for you. So how do we tell the difference? How do we determine which parts of the ten words are commands and which are wisdom? Because they're handled in the exact same way in Deuteronomy. And it's in this question that we find our challenge. A lot of how a person perceives and understands the difference between interpreting the commands as law and the commands as guidance will say a lot about a person's spiritual maturity. Do you see the ten words as commands that you are being commanded to do as a king or a father would command a child? Or do you see the ten words as signs and goalposts to reach in your growth as a child of God? This is the difference between the Torah as a legal code that you will do because you've been told to out of fear of punishment or seeking to gain reward, or seeing the Torah as Paul describes it, as a tutor that's intended to train proper action. The goal not being to avoid punishment or gain reward, but rather the goal being fulfilling the role that you are being called to occupy. And this week's command that brings out that role that we are to occupy as people of Israel. Deuteronomy 5 verse 11. You shall not take the name of Hashem your God in vain, for Hashem will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Do not take the name of Hashem your God in vain. What does this mean? 
I was raised with the idea that this command meant to not use God or Jesus or Lord as expletives. Doing so is a direct violation of this command, and this command is limited then to this interpretation. Don't swear by using a word, title, or name that can be associated with the God of Israel. But if we limit this word to this interpretation, then I contend that we miss a lot of what this command is meant to impart. Because this word is not one that's concerned with what comes out of your mouth. The ideal here is so much deeper than this. And it begins with getting to the original language of the verse, Deuteronomy 5.11 in Hebrew. Lo tessa et shem Hashem elohecha leshav. Do not carry or bear or lift up the name of Hashem your God to emptiness or falsehood or vanity. This word is not saying don't speak the name emptily, which is the interpretation that I grew up with. It says do not carry or bear the name emptily. This is more about how a person is to act when entering into covenant. When we enter into covenant with the God of creation, we in essence take his name. We bear his name. And this was how we were created in the beginning, Genesis 1.27. And God created the man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We were made in God's image. But then humanity chose to act as beasts, to become in the image of a beast. And with Israel and the Torah, a cross-section of humanity is being called back to humanity called to discard the image of the beast and picked up that image of God that we were originally created with. And when we do so, we take his name and our actions then become associated with him, his reputation, his character, his nature, and his power. And so when we declare allegiance to Hashem and through his son to Yeshua, we then take his name and we carry it with us throughout our lives. And when we then act contrary to his character, after taking his name, we have then taken his name in vain. If you would like to dig deeper into understanding this command in this way, I highly recommend the book, Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters, by Dr. Carmen Imes. And so this word, it contains at its base our calling, the thing that humanity lost and the reason for the Torah in the first place. Not to create a punishment and reward scenario, but rather to begin to describe the things of importance to living out the image of God as he intended. A third word that's connected to the first through the recognition that Hashem is God and that he is our God. And this word, it overlaps with the second word because it is a recognition that creating images to worship Hashem or any other God is a foolish endeavor. We are the image of the living God. And so now it's up to us to conform ourselves to this reality by being proper image bearers of him. And so with this in mind, let's turn to Deuteronomy 13 and read chapters 13 and 14. Deuteronomy chapter 13 and 14. When there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he shall give you a sign or a wonder, And the sign or the wonder shall come true of which he has spoken to you, saying, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and serve them. 
Do not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For Hashem your God is trying you to know whether you love Hashem your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Walk after Hashem your God and fear Him and guard His commands and obey His voice and serve Him and cling to Him. And that prophet or that dreamer of dreams is put to death because he has spoken apostasy against Hashem your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of bondage to make you stray from the way which Hashem your God commanded you to walk. Thus you shall purge the evil from your midst. When your brother, the son of your mother, or the son of your daughter, or the wife of your bosom, or the friend who is as your own soul, entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers, of the gods of the peoples which are all around you, near to you, or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. Do not agree with him, or listen to him, nor shall your eye pardon him, nor spare him, or conceal him, but you shall certainly kill him. Your hand is first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. And you shall stone him with stones until he dies, because he sought to entice you away from Hashem your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And let all Israel hear and fear, and not again do any such evil matter as this in your midst. When you hear someone in one of your cities which Hashem your God gives you to dwell in, saying, Some men, some sons of Belial, have gone out of your midst and led the inhabitants of their city astray, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, gods whom you have not known. Then you shall inquire, search out, and ask diligently, and see if the matter is true, and establish that this abomination was done in your midst. You shall certainly strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, putting it under the ban, and all that is in it, and its livestock with the edge of the sword, and gather all its plunder into the middle of the street, and completely burn with fire the city and all its plunder before Hashem your God, and it shall be a heap forever, never to be built again. And none of that which is put under the ban is to cling to your hand so that Hashem turns from the fierceness of his displeasure and shall show you compassion, love you, and increase you as he swore to your fathers. When you obey the voice of Hashem your God to guard all his commands which I command you today, to do what is right in the eyes of Hashem your God. You are the children of Hashem your God. Do not cut yourselves, nor shave the front of your head for the dead. For you are a holy people to Hashem your God, and Hashem has chosen you to be a people for himself, a treasured possession above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Do not eat whatever is abominable. These are the living creatures which you do eat, ox, sheep, and goat, deer, and gazelle, and roebuck, and wild goat, and mountain goat, and antelope, and mountain sheep, and every beast that has split hoof divided in two, chewing the cud among the beasts you do eat. But of those chewing the cud, or of those having a split hoof completely divided, you do not eat such as these, the camel, and the hare, and the rabbit, for they chew the cud, but do not have a split hoof. They are unclean to you. And the pig is unclean for you, because it has a split hoof, but it does not chew the cud. You do not eat their flesh, or touch the dead carcasses. These you do eat of all that are in the waters, all that have fins and scales you do eat. And whatever does not have fins and scales, you do not eat. It is unclean for you. Any clean bird you do eat, but these you do not eat. The eagle and the vulture and the black vulture, and the red kite and the falcon and the buzzard after their kind, and every raven after its kind, and the ostrich and the nighthawk, 
and the seagull, and the hawk after their kinds, and the little owl, and the great owl, and the white owl, and the pelican, and the carrion vulture, and the fisher owl, and the stork, and the heron after its kind, and the hoopoe, and the bat. And every creeping insect that flies is unclean for you, they are not eaten. Any clean bird you do eat. Do not eat whatever dies of itself. Give it to the stranger who is within your gates to eat it, or to sell it to a foreigner. For you are a holy people to Hashem, your God. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. You shall tithe without fail all the yield of your grain that the field brings forth year by year. And you shall eat before Hashem, your God, in the place where he chooses to make his name dwell. The tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil and the firstlings of your herd and your sheep, so that you learn to fear Hashem, your God, always. But when the way is too long for you, so that you are not able to bring the tithe, or when the place where Hashem your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, when Hashem your God is blessing you, then you shall give it in silver, and take the silver in your hand, and shall go to the place Hashem your God chooses. And you shall use the silver for whatever your being desires, for cattle or sheep or wine or strong drink or whatever your being desires. And you shall eat there before Hashem your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. And do not forsake the Levite who is within your gates, for he has no part nor inheritance with you. At the end of every third year, you bring out all the tithe of your increase of that year and store it up within your gates. And the Levite, because he has no portion nor inheritance with you, and the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates shall come and eat and be satisfied, so that Hashem, your God, does bless you in all the work of your hand, which you do. We in the West, we are individualistic to an extreme. We desire privacy. We are autonomous. We value uniqueness. We are self-sufficient. We're introspective. And we value independence overall. All traits of individualistic societies. But ancient cultures were not individualistic. In fact, many honor-shame cultures, even today, they're not individualistic at all. These cultures are communal cultures, and in these cultures, the communal group works together for the benefit of the group, not the individual. In these cultures, if an individual must be sacrificed for the good of all, then the choice is easy. Sacrifice the individual so that the whole may continue. And these ideas are usually placed at odds with each other, the good of the many pitted against the good of the one. And these groups, they range from kinship groups. These are your family from the immediate to extended family blood bond groups. Brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, aunts, uncles, grandparents, cousins. And after the kinship group, then comes your fictive kinship groups. These are those who are around you that are close as family, though they're not really related to you by blood. This is the kind of relationship that David had with Jonathan. Or, as verse 6 of chapter 13 in this Parsha puts it, this is the friend that is as your own soul. This is the kind of group that allows the apostles to call other Christians brother and sister. These are the people who you relate to the most outside of your own family that are connected to you through common ideal or organization. After this community group, there are the people who are connected to you through geography, those who are physically closest to you, your neighborhood or your city. And then there's a national group, those who are connected to you through common governmental structure and leadership and borders. 
And life in the ancient Near East and much of the world is a balancing act of these different groups that a person could belong to. And rarely was any consideration given to the individual when each of the levels of group interaction was at stake. Everything that the person did was in support of one of these groups. The needs, wants, and goals of the group becoming the primary concern. And everyone then working together to achieve these group goals. If you'd like to learn more about this, you can read the book Misreading Scripture with Individualist Eyes by E. Randolph Richards and Richard James. And so when we turn to Deuteronomy 13, we begin to read about bearing the image of God as expanded in the Torah. We discover that the text does not go into the do's and don'ts of bearing God's image. That is what the rest of the Torah and the Bible is for. Instead, it goes into how to identify those who might be part of your various groups that might be a danger to the community, those who claim the name of God but who do not live out the name of God, those who are called by his name but have made his name an empty thing. And this chapter runs the gamut of identification. It begins with the one who claims to speak on behalf of God, the prophet in your midst. How do you identify a prophet or a dreamer? Well, if a person exhibits power, they have the ability to tell a future events, they can work signs and miracles. On the surface, a person who has this kind of power would seem to have been granted that power from God, and so we should listen to them. But then this person speaks of following other gods, of seeking out personal empowerment, desire fulfillment, or gain. This person entices the animal nature in humanity to entice us to gratify our lusts or pride or power. In the ancient Near East, this would have taken the form of enticing a person to seek after other gods. Come, says this prophet, follow Baal or Molech or Chemosh, and they will give you the things that you want, and my power is the proof of their ability to bless you. But as with so many things, the specifics in our day and age, they've changed. No longer is it come and serve Baal, that is the sign of this form of false prophet, because we don't recognize the ancient gods in the same way. Instead, Yeshua gives us other means of identifying those who claim to speak from God and are not of God. Because there are many today who speak of the God of Abraham and in Yeshua, but who are false. Matthew seven fifteen through 20 But be aware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are savage wolves. By their fruits you shall know them. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every good tree yields good fruit, but a rotten tree yields wicked fruit. A good tree is unable to yield wicked fruit, and a rotten tree to yield good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, by their fruits you shall know them. Not everyone who says to me, Master, Master, shall enter into the kingdom of heavens, but he who is doing the desire of my Father in the heavens. Many shall say to me in that day, Master, Master, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many mighty works in your name? And then I shall declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who work lawlessness. When a prophet comes to you and works miracles in your midst, even if they say, Come, follow me as I follow Jesus. I too am a sheep of his fold. We are to be discerning. 
It is a wicked generation that seeks a sign or a miracle as proof of the truth, because these can be provided by many who are not of the truth, but who simply have power. Instead of looking for power, we are to watch and to see what kind of fruit does the tree produce. Are they exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, meekness, self-control. Are they exhibiting the character of God, compassion, grace, patience, loyalty to covenant and mercy? Are they saying, repent, turn from your sins and follow the Messiah because he will give you life? Or are they saying, follow the Messiah because he will give you money or health or fame or power? Are they themselves seeking money or power or fame or influence? Do they end up making their own name great in the eyes of many, claiming the power of God as their own? Because it's in these details of a life examined over time that you will find the clues as to whether the one who is coming to you with miracles or power or knowledge or a gospel of prosperity is a false teacher or not. And it's in this that we will discover if a prophet truly speaks for Hashem or not. After this commentary on the recognition of an image bearer based on an expression of supernatural power or knowledge, then comes the discussion of image recognition within your local groups that we interact with. The kinship groups, fictive kinship groups, and local community groups. And again, when someone that you are close to, an individual that is counted as part of your group, comes to you or any other within your group and entices them to seek after other gods, then they are to be removed from your group. Once again, we see the good of the community being placed over the good of any one individual, because an individual with ill intent or even ignorance can cause great damage to the whole. A single cancerous cell spreads to others. A bad apple entices other apples to go bad. A sheep that wanders off the path can cause others to follow in their wake. And a person with ungodly intentions can lead others away from God. And so we are to seek to do what when we encounter a person of this nature? We're to expel them from the community. Wrong. Our first action is not to destroy the infidel in our midst, but rather we are called to seek first their restoration to the community. Galatians 6.1 Brother, if a man is overtaken in some trespass, you, the spiritual one, set such a one straight in the spirit of meekness, looking at yourselves too, lest you be tried. We read similar instructions in other books as well. Titus 3, 8-11 through 11. Trustworthy is the word in this regard. I wish you to strongly affirm that those who have believed in God should keep their minds on maintaining good works. This is good and profitable to men. But keep away from foolish questions and genealogies and strife and quarrels about the Torah, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a divisive man after the first and second warning, knowing that such a one has been perverted and sin, being self-condemned. We are to give warning. We are to seek to restore a brother who is more concerned with personal aggrandizement or being proven right in small matters one who's willing to argue and cause division and dissension in the community. Several warnings are to be given, and it's only after the person refuses to hear correction that they're to be removed from the community. Yeshua speaks on this as well in Matthew 18 in the instructions about how to restore a brother who has sinned. 
If there's one who claims to carry the image of God in your midst, who is profaning the image of God, we are to seek their restoration and correction. If they refuse after that, they are to be removed. And in this we find the New Testament extrapolation of these ideals that are founded here in Deuteronomy 13. Reject those who insist on sinning. Remove them from your groups and your communities, those who are a danger for the sake of the whole. Even if they are family, even if they're your best friend, if they are a danger to everyone else because of a continued and unrepentant sin, then they are to be rejected. But in the New Testament, we find that proper application of this ideal requires attempts at correction and restoration. Seeking to engage with those in sin, but who you also call a brother and sister, and bring them back into proper alignment with the gospel and with the community. It's only after this continued and rejected attempts to restore such a person that they are then to be rejected from the community. After the local and kinship groups, the text then turns to other communities within the greater body. In the Israel of the time of Moses through Yeshua, this means cities that had turned from serving Hashem to serving other gods. Again, this community is to be removed from the nation, and their influence upon the nation is to be destroyed. In the ancient Near East, this meant the entire and complete destruction of everything that existed within the community, the people, the animals, the objects, and the buildings, everything raised to the ground, rejected from future participation in the community to the point that that city is never again to be rebuilt. What does this look like in the modern age? Well, it may look like removing an individual church from a denomination over some doctrine of heresy. It may look like taking another community off of your mailing list and not associating with them in the future. It might mean being careful of whose teachings you share on your social media. The one message might sound great, but overall, are they a wolf? Frankly, the name Christian or Hebrew roots or Messianic and others, they've all been tainted because these ideas have not been implemented. Christians are mocked and rejected for all the wrong reasons, because there are many out there who are these ravenous wolves that we have not been able to disassociate with. There are those who are actively seeking after things of the flesh, anger, pride, comfort, desire, lust. The Christian church is full of these using power or ear-tickling to draw many into snares of the flesh and their destruction. But on the other hand, the Torah-observant movement is just as full of those who are divisive, factious, and argumentative, splitting from communities and relationships on the slightest offense or disagreement on a matter of knowledge and not truth, arguing over things that don't matter and making sideshow items into main events. But in the communities of Messiah, there is to be one thing that unites Yeshua and his sacrifice on our behalf. His blood unites us together into this fictive kinship group where I can call each one of you brother and sister. And the enemy hates this and seeks to destroy it, and he is using everything at his disposal to accomplish this. He has infiltrated the church in the body of Messiah. He seeks to influence the group with the indoctrination of individuals and to convince us to make the individual into a god and to put the individual on a pedestal over the group. Or alternatively, to put the group on a pedestal and to discard the individual. 
but we are called to engage in a balancing act because the individual does indeed have value. Yeshua does leave the 99 behind to seek out the one who has wandered astray. But Yeshua doesn't leave the wolf in the pen with the 99. He doesn't leave the 99 unprotected for the sake of the one, and he doesn't seek to bring the wolf back. And if the one cannot be returned to the fold, even after seeking them out and seeking to restore them to the flock, then the one is to be left to chase after his own devices, because he's not of the flock. Matthew 18 speaks directly to this. We as Westerners, we have to get over our uber-individuality and begin to act in ways that benefit the group, the body of Messiah. To begin to balance me with we in a way that does not hold either as higher than the other, but places them into equal standing. The needs of the many do not outweigh the needs of the few, and the needs of the few do not outweigh the needs of the one. This is a false dichotomy. Both must be balanced together when we operate as a body. And I suspect that if we could figure out how to do this in practice, it would look a lot like Acts 4. Everyone giving of what they have so that no one does without, and no one being coerced by the group to give anything that they don't want to give. Ananias and Sapphira, they were not required to give the entirety of the sale of their property to the community. They could have kept some for themselves and still been part of the community. But alternatively, they couldn't give nothing and still be part of the group either. Being part of the body of Messiah means giving, as we see at the end of this chapter. The community and the individual imbalance, and all living in the character of Yeshua, bearing fruit of the Spirit for the kingdom of God. And in chapter 14, the text then opens with a shift of focus. From recognizing those who are wolves among us, to instructions on how to then live this image out correctly through a series of commands that don't really fit into any of the other ten words. And since we, as humans, are the image of the living God, chapter 14 opens with just this. Don't deface this image with cuttings or destroying what he has made. And especially don't do it for the sake of the dead, because Hashem is the God of the living, not of the dead, and you are his holy people. And then in verse 3, we encounter once again the dietary restrictions on animal products that we read previously in Leviticus 11. And for much of the rest of the chapter, this is what we find. What to eat, what not to eat. And the ideas of Leviticus 11 is repeated once again. Now, when we encountered this list back in Leviticus 11, we saw this list was primarily connected to uncleanness in the people of Israel. But at the end of chapter 11 of Leviticus, we read that this ideal of diet was also connected to the idea of holiness of God and of the people of God. Well, what is it that verse 2 of chapter 14 states here once again as a lead-in to this ideal? You are, O holy people, to Hashem your God. You were chosen. You are a precious possession over all other peoples. And in this, we discover that part of what these dietary restrictions were designed to do is to demonstrate a quality of the holiness of the God we serve. We are his image, and he is holy. And what is holiness? It's separation, dividing what belongs and what doesn't. It's the same exercise of the previous chapter. It's recognizing what belongs where and then sorting it appropriately. 
And so engaging in this process of discerning something as simple as what we eat reveals to those around us that we are not like everyone else. We are different. We are separate. And our food is one way that we can demonstrate this easily. For God is holy, and he divides the holy from the profane. He divides the clean from the unclean. He divides the day from the night. He divides the living from the dead. And so we should seek to do the same. And this begins with our most basic human desire, food. It was the first command given to man who was in the image of God, and it is the transgression of this command that led to becoming like the image of the beast. Eat from these things and do not eat from those. And so participating in this continued exercise, it speaks to the world about our God and who it is that we serve. And this is just the beginning of practicing discernment and holiness. It is a means of image bearing that does not fit under other categories. And then in verse 21, we read of other dietary items that are also off the menu. Anything that dies on its own. If you go out to the field or the chicken coop and one of your herd or flock are dead, then they're not for your food. At least not for the native born. And in this one place, we find a difference of action in the Torah between the Ger and the Azrach. The friendly foreigner and the native born. The native born is not to eat of the animal that dies on its own, but it can be given to the Ger or sold to a foreigner. Now, after reading in multiple places in the Torah that there is one Torah for the native-born and one for the Ger, this is one verse that kind of gets in the the way of this idea for some. It's this verse that's the linchpin in the arguments that there is one law for Jews and other law for Gentiles in circles that hold to this idea. But if we sit and we think about it, we have to recognize this is the same Torah. It's just that this one Torah that is for both of these people, is making a distinction between these groups of people. So this does not demonstrate a different Torah for each, but rather that there may be slightly different requirements based on class or group for each within the Torah. To say that this demonstrates a different Torah between these classes would be to say that there's a different Torah for the orphan widow and the Levite and the rich man. Why? Because these people are to receive tithes according to the upcoming verses, but the rich and the powerful, they're not to receive tithes, but they're rather to give tithes. Obviously, this demonstrates a different Torah as an effect for these classes, right? A different Torah for the rich and a different one for the poor. But when we put it this way, the idea suddenly becomes laughable. It's ludicrous. Of course, there's not a different Torah for the rich and for the poor. But this reveals that despite the differences in this verse, there's not a different Torah for the Ger and for the Azrach. This simply demonstrates that there are various classes who are treated slightly differently within the Torah based on their needs and status. What sets a Ger apart from a native-born? A Ger cannot own land in Canaan. Thus, they cannot have flocks and herds, and this means that their access to meat is more limited than it is to the native-born who, if he doesn't have land for food, at least has better access to land and food as part of their inheritance of the land that's to be returned to their family and their clan every 50th year. The Ger has none of this, and so is more likely to be destitute, and so under the Torah, they can be blessed with something that might not be fit for a person with flocks and herds a stretching of the law for the sake of preserving life. 
And the final part of verse 21 is the third and the final occurrence of the admonition to not boil a goat in its mother's milk. And since I have not addressed this in any depth up to this point, uh, let's do so rather quickly right now. It's the location of this verse here in Deuteronomy 14 that has convinced the Jewish rabbis that this verse was a dietary command regarding the eating of milk and meat in the same meal. The argument goes something like this. Meat is a product of death. Something has to die to give you meat. But milk is a product that gives life. The young drink the milk and grow and live. And so we're not to mix these two realms in our diets. Eat one or the other, but not both as once. Now, while I'm a huge proponent of seeing the Bible through the lens of life and death, I have a hard time believing that a command such as don't eat milk and meat together would be steeped as a riddle in the midst of a clearly stated command. Besides, we find Abraham serving dairy and meat to his angelic visitors in Genesis 18, and one of those messengers, one of those angels, being addressed as Hashem in that chapter. And meat and cheese, they were brought to David and to his men to eat after they had escaped Jerusalem during the civil war with Absalom. Now, I don't disagree that this is a dietary command. This is a well-documented fertility practice in the nations that surrounded Israel. The resulting cooked meat was then to be eaten to foster fertility and virility in the person who ate of it. I do disagree that this command has anything to do with the separation of dairy and animal protein just doesn't fit with the overall tone of the chapter, and the methods of extrapolation that we're engaging in, they don't lead to this type of result. Rather, the resulting interpretation and expansion is something like, don't do what the nations do, even with foods that are declared clean. Don't engage in their worship practices, even if the animal is not inherently unclean. And then to finish off this chapter, we encounter several other interesting ideas that could be the fodder for support or dispelling several other ideas that are popular in various groups. Now, I have discussed the ideal of the tithe before, so I'm not going to get deep into it this time around. We'll wait till later. The fact is that when we turn to the New Testament, the idea of the tithe is shifted to simply give. Not an accounting ideal that's to be carried out to the last decimal, but rather give of what you have to those who don't have, and do so joyfully. Doing so is yet another way that we can live out the image of God to the world around us, because He is the giver of good gifts and He supports the vulnerable, and so we are to act in the same way with our own goods. But nestled in this recounting of the tithes are a few things of interest. If your tithe is too much to carry with you to Jerusalem, then sell it for silver. Then bring the silver to Jerusalem at the time of the festivals and spend your tithe on celebrating the festival. And you can spend this money on whatever you like as part of your celebration. You want food to feast on? Go get some cattle or some sheep. Get some alcohol while you're at it. This is a party, so party! And this command flies directly in the face of the idea of the teetotaler as a command. Many will use the texts of Proverbs or Paul in various places about drunkenness as the foundation that alcohol should never be drunk at all. But we read right here that if you want alcohol for your feast day celebration, then buy some with the money of your tithes and rejoice. 
And it's also this passage primarily that's used to support the idea of three tithes. We read previously of the tithe in Numbers 18 that was to be given only to the Levites. Later in Deuteronomy 26, we're going to read of a vow that a person makes in regard to another tithe, that their hand would not touch it and was not used for personal gain. But right here, we just read of a tithe that's to be used for personal enjoyment of the festivals. And both here and in chapter 26, we're going to read of a third tithe that's to be treated differently than in the other years. The tithes of the third year are to be given to the poor, the widow, and the orphan. In this chapter, it's so that they can enjoy the festivals as well. Their poverty should not prevent them from enjoying the holidays. And so from this arises the various tithe schemes that I spoke on previously. And once again, I'm not going to take a stance on just how much a person should give. I will take the stance of the authors of the New Testament and say simply, give. You should be giving of your abundance and even your poverty as a way of living out the image of God. He gives and gives and gives to us. And so we should in return give and give and give to those who are around us in his name. But only do so joyfully. Do not give out of compulsion. Do not give out of shame. Do not give if it's causing you fear. But give something to someone who needs it. It doesn't have to be money. Just a little bit if that's all you feel you can afford. But do give. Give to those in need. Give out of love for your neighbor. And in these ways, we can begin to live the image of God out in our lives, not just for the benefit of others and not just to be seen as bearing his image. Live a life in the image of God, even if no one ever sees it. Because living the image of God, whether in diet or tithe or any other way of keeping the Torah or walking out the gospel, while it may be a way to proselytize to others, living this way is not about proselytizing to others. It's about living as God intended, fulfilling the human ideal in our own lives, truly living in his image. Not an image made of wood or stone, but the image of God that lives and breathes and speaks just as our God does. Those who worship wood and stone will be like them, but we are not wood and stone. We are living. We are not beasts either or the descendants of beasts. We are men. We are the image of God in this world, and we have been so from the beginning. Now, it's our call as humans to walk that out in our lives. Because bearing the proper image is one of the keys of life. So continue to Dereshchai. Seek life by bearing his image. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Dereshchai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we dare as we seek life. Shalom.